no story that's inside of you, no emotion that's inside of you is too weird or strange. If you feel it, it is human. Therefore, you know, you are doing someone a service to try to describe it. Hi, everyone. I am Jim Ryan, president of the University of Virginia, and I'd like to welcome all of you to the 10th episode of Inside UVA. This podcast is a chance for me to speak with some of the amazing people at the university and to learn more about what they do and who they are. My hope is that listeners will ultimately have a better understanding of how UVA works and a deeper appreciation of the remarkably talented and dedicated people who make UVA the institution it is. Today, I am thrilled to welcome Rita Dove, the Henry Hoynes Professor of Creative Writing at the University of Virginia, to today's episode of Inside UVA. Professor Dove, thank you very much for joining me. It's my delight, Jim. Is it okay if we call each other by our first names? Absolutely. Okay. So, um, Rita, you are easily one of the most celebrated, uh, respected, and admired poets in the country, if not the world. Uh, Among your long list of accomplishments are serving as Poet Laureate of the United States and Poet Laureate of the Commonwealth. Um, You have received 28 honorary doctorate degrees from places like Yale, Harvard, and Spelman. You have won the National Humanities Medal and the National Medal for the Arts, and you are not slowing down even a little bit. Your latest book of poetry, Playlist for the Apocalypse, which we'll come back to, and was recently named by New York Times critics as one of the top books of 2021, and I believe the only collection of poetry um, on that list. So let me just say it is a real honor to be speaking with you, and I'm a little nervous right now. Oh, you shouldn't be. <laughs> you can't be the president of, the, of my Fuck. university. <laughs> Um, but you're Rita Dove. <laughs> um, so let's start at the beginning. Um, I'm curious what got you into poetry and creative writing, and at what point in your life did you know this is going to be my life's work? I think my love of poetry began even before I learn to read because I I loved books and I loved picture books and I loved the stories that they told without using words. So I loved those images that they were creating. But then I started to read and that was the beginning of of everything because I I devoured books and I read anything I could get my hands on, cereal boxes. Uh, You know, I would be reading at the breakfast table. But then I also went to the bookshelf, which thank God we had in our house. Um, My father was a chemist. My mother loved literature. So we had this eclectic group of of books from analytical or organic chemistry textbooks to Shakespeare. That was the biggest book. That's the book I took down, Shakespeare. And so at 10, I was trying to read Shakespeare. No kidding. Yeah. And I, of course, I didn't understand half of what I was reading, but the half I did understand was so beautiful, was so lyrical, and I could still, I read the plays mostly um, because they had a narrative, and so I could follow them, and, and it was amazing what language could do. That was the beginning. Right. And when did you start writing yourself? Uh, probably about the same time, though, I did start with writing science fiction stories because my brother loved science fiction and I read all of his books. But I also read Mad Magazine. 
And, oh, so did I. Okay, I mean, Mad Magazine was the best because they, they really, they did these little plays, they did these satirical things. And so I began to try to write rhymed poetry. And I still remember uh, the first time I wrote a, a poem that I was so proud of because I didn't know the end until I had written myself through the form. And it was about a rabbit, and the rabbit had a droopy ear, and that was that was his problem, that he had one ear that hung down. And so I, I wrote this rhymed poem, and I didn't know how it was going to end. How was he going to solve his ear problem? And it was the rhyme that helped me solve his ear problem. So, yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Okay, so fast forward. You're in college. Um, are you thinking at that point that you are going to make a go at at being a poet and a creative writer. I mean, it's it's not an easy path to pursue, and you have to be courageous, I think, to say, this is what I want to do. Well, you know, even though I, I loved poetry and wrote it all the time, I went into college thinking I was going to be a lawyer or maybe a psychoanalyst. I, I, I changed my major about three or four times in my first semester. And it wasn't until I got into a creative writing class, and I stumbled into it too. I, one of the required courses at my university, Miami University of Ohio, was a composition. And the professor came and saying, we're gonna write stories, and you will learn about composition through stories. And I thought, there's a course in writing? I can get credit for this thing I love. So I started in that course and I went next semester immediately over into poetry. That was it. I mean, I loved it. And at that point, I think I was hovering between uh, becoming a musician because I was playing the cello in the orchestra and I really loved music as well. But I was so shy. I thought I, I, I can never be a performer. And with poetry, which I loved too, I could take it everywhere. I didn't have to step in front of audiences. I mean, if I knew what I knew now. And I decided to try it until I, you know, had nothing to eat. And then I would, you know, do something else. Uh, and uh, luckily, I never ran out of something to eat. So. And here you are today. Yeah. Um, was there a big break moment for you? when you were a young poet, or was it more gradual that your work received some critical acclaim and then more notice and then more critical acclaim? It, you know, it goes in bits and spurts. Uh, I had a, some, a couple of really lucky breaks, I think, early on, and, and some of them happened at university when I was an undergraduate. They, they invited writers to come in, and one of the poets said, uh, you know, I, I really like these poems. Can I publish them in my magazine? I had no idea what his magazine was. So I went and asked my professors, and they said, are you out of your mind right now? Give me those poems. Give me those poems. Uh, so. It, it, was, it was not Mad Magazine, I assume. <laughs> that I would have known. <laughs> I would have known. No, um, it was Antaeus, which was a fantastic magazine. And then... The editor, Dan Halpin, also published me in, in, a, in an anthology he was putting together of new young uh, writers, all of which is to say um, I, I maybe had written 10 poems I liked at that point, you know. And, and so I, 
that was a little early flip, but then of course immediately went down into nothingness, nothingness, nothingness for a while. But what I learned from that early thing, uh, recognition, I think, is that that's not what you're writing for. That's not what I was writing for. I was writing to get across to other strangers some deep and private emotions and thoughts so that I could feel that, that we're not alone on the planet. And it all sounds corny, but that's basically what I think every every artist is doing in their own particular medium. My medium was words. My medium was a language. And when I was entangled in the language was when I was happiest. So can we talk about that a little bit, the process that you go through in writing a poem? What's it like? Do you start with an idea, a phrase, uh, a story you want to tell? How, how does it work? Or maybe it's different for, uh, for each poem or for at least some poems as compared to others. Uh, well, you hit the nail right on the head with the last thing. It is different for every poem. I never really can predict or even direct the composition of a poem. Most of the time, my poems will start with either an image or a phrase. When I say an image, something it can be something that I've just observed, someone walking down the street who stops to pick something up, and then I wonder what that is. Now, someone else could have said, well, that could be the beginning of a short story, right? But for, for me, I'll start to think about an image, a word to describe the way that they bend down. Very often it will start with me with a phrase, with words. And the idea is there. I mean, it's behind the words, but it's not the primary thing directing the poem. Because for me, I find if, if the idea is in front, then it becomes a speech. <laughs> you know, it's the way in which truth or realization emerges, kind of bubbles up. So my process is wacko, and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone else unless that's the way they roll. Um, because for a long time, I would try to write from beginning to end. I'd start the poem, and I, I would try to finish one poem before I went to another. And I was moving very slowly. And um, I had one professor uh, tell me, Look at what you do in everyday life. Look how you conduct your life. And that's how you should write your poems. It seems obvious now, you know, you, you connect it to the way your rhythms are. And I thought, okay, uh, first of all, I, I'm a night person. I like to stay up at night, so that's when I should be writing my poems because that was when I had the most energy. But also, I do many different things at one time. So I said, why am I trying to finish one poem? Why not write multiple poems? Which means that I have folders with scraps of poems, a line here, a stanza there. And I will sometimes work on several at once. I'll work on one until I hit a wall. How do I keep them apart? Yeah, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a mess. I color code them. I'll put them in different colored folders, the red folder, the green folder, the yellow folder, the salmon colored folder. And so if I go into my study to write or I'm stuck and I want to turn to another poem, I will say, okay, what color do you feel like? I'll just look at the little rainbow array and I say, oh, it's blue then. It's a way of sneaking in underneath the, you know, subconscious and saying, that's how I feel. Yeah. 
That's remarkable. And so how do you know when a poem is done? Yeah, how do you know? <laughs> there are several ways, and none of them are 100%, you know, obviously. Um, one of them, I think, is, is simply time. And I'm talking years. I'm talking the fact that if a poem that I wrote at age 27, I'm not going to touch again. This is what a 27-year-old, how a 27-year-old grasped reality. So if I feel the need to rewrite it, then I'm going to write another poem. Um, but, but obviously that is not a good uh, solution for creative writing students who have semesters and they have to get poems in. And I think that for me, uh, a poem is finished when you feel like something has opened up in the poem. Something has opened up and you go, whoa, I didn't even know that was going to happen. But it it was there all along. And that means you're on the road to finishing it. The, the, The tweaking, this line seems a little long or it kind of stumbles and you don't want it to stumble. You want it to, to uh, lope, let's say you want it to prance or whatever. Then those things you can keep working on, but the poem may be essentially almost finished. For for students, I often will say, you know, just get used to the fact that the poem is still in process. And, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, you shouldn't try to shut it down too early. Just let it keep going. So you mentioned teaching. How do you teach poetry? <laughs> can it be taught? You know, I wonder in the end if anything can be taught if we think of it in that sense, yes, you can teach poetry. What you can do, what I can do, what a professor can do, is to teach how, first of all, the techniques, you know, stress and syllables and iambic pentameter and forms. That's the easy part. But I think most most of us are so used to language or talking that we think of it not as something that is malleable. And... Um, that is, that's the hard part. That's the almost unteachable part. I, I do do things like I'll, I'll show a, a student that you can take a word that, that its denotative meaning is not what you're looking for. But uh, when combined with another word, it makes a, a, a new sense of, of something. Um, for instance, um, I remember looking very uh, long for a, an adjective in a poem of mine called Bellringer, which is about Henry Martin the bell ringer at the University of Virginia. And I had the one word republic. I wanted to talk about the republic for which it stands, you know, all that. But I couldn't find the other word. And so I was going through all these other words, broken history. And and finally, the word that I found, and I don't know how I found it. I was looking, probably I was burning my hand while I was cooking or something, but it was... (laughs) uh, Reading a cereal box again, maybe. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> it was in this blistered, in this blistered huh. republic. And I would not have, like, immediately come upon that word. Uh, you don't think of it in terms of a, of a, of a republic. But a lot of the, the things behind it, the sound of it, the, the, that, that short, I, that gives you that feeling that something is crackling under the surface. And so um, I try to show them how that works. And what's your favorite part about teaching? Do you have a favorite part? A favorite part? <sighs> you know, one of, the most, uh, the, one of the most wonderful things about teaching is watching a student get so 
carried away with the whatever poem they're working on that they 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 ask if they can bring in like all the drafts and then to ask the rest of the class are you up for uh, having maybe an extra class and they say sure and that that's exciting now that's exciting yeah to see the passion mm-hmm. to see the passion right the passion and the rigor and that the rigor is part of the passion yeah right and do you um think being a teacher of of poetry has made you a better poet yes it has uh first of all it keeps me honest Nothing like a a young person to keep you honest. Uh, I've had students challenge me. One of the things I do is give them an individualized writing assignment. Sometime during the semester, someone might get it in April, someone else might get it in January. But it's an individualized, crazy, crazy writing assignment geared toward their personalities and their, their, their likes and dislikes to knock them off their seat a little bit. They're, they're called wild cards. They live in terror of the wild cards, but also they also are very jealous if someone else gets theirs before the, they get theirs. And so I've had students say to me, well, you gave us a wild card. You know, why don't we give you one? And I said, fair, fair enough. And some of those wild cards or those challenges by students have resulted in some wonderful poems for me. No kidding. Huh. Well, they they observe me. They see who I am, too, a little bit. And so they want to say, you know, this this will knock you off your rocker. And most of the time, they're right. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be the um, poet laureate of the United States? Did you enjoy the experience? What did it mean at the time? Mm. It was such a surprise because I had just finished the semester, had just finished my grading, and was thinking, oh, I have a summer of, you know, I can write, when the call came from Washington, and it was amazing, but at the same time, I thought, oh, there goes my summer. It was, though, however, uh, an amazing experience. At the time, uh, their poetry was not really something that was part of the national consciousness. It was existing basically at the, in the universities, uh, and... Uh, up to that time, the poet laureates had been uh, considerably older than I was then, and uh, they really just kind of sat in the office and, you know, were poet laureate. And I thought, well, you know, they're asking me to do this, and, you know, I'm fairly young. So I decided that I would be an active poet laureate. So that's what I did. I went a lot of places. I went to to grade schools. I went to the Naval Academy. I went places where no one had ever seen a poet before. And uh, no question was too, uh, quote unquote, stupid or anything like that. I invited questions. Um, it was it was hard to do because I was shy, but it, the, 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 the joy in, in like young people made up for that. It was so amazing. That must have been exciting. It was totally crazy. It was totally crazily exciting. Yeah. What would you say to someone, and I'm sure you encountered this while you were a poet laureate, what do you tell someone who is intimidated by poetry? How do you encourage people to read poetry? Well, the first thing I try to tell them to do is that 
first of all, to say that you don't have to like every poet or every poem, no matter what the quote-unquote critics say. You do not have to like them. Um, I have poets, and I will not name them here, but, uh, you know, who are considered classics and revered that I, I really don't like their work. I'll read it over and over again, and I try, but I don't. Okay, that's fine. That's fair enough. There's enough out there. That's the one thing. And the other thing I also try to tell them is read it aloud and read a poem as if you were talking to somebody else. Don't try to elevate. Like just, just read it and then try to imagine what that person, or have someone else read it to you, and try to imagine if you were just sitting there and someone said that, what, what would you think? What would you take away from it? Because one of the most uh, illuminating, things that, illuminating things that happened to me when I was in um, ninth grade was that I was terrified, and everybody in our class was terrified that we didn't understand poetry. And so this teacher put us in groups, gave us a snippet of poetry, didn't tell us who it was from, and said, in a week, come back and tell us what you got from it. And the piece that he gave our group was from uh, Ezra Pound, Hugh Selwyn Marberley. It was, it had Greek in it with Greek lettering. Uh, you know, we're looking at this going, oh, come on, man. This is like out of the... So we just began to toss around ideas and said, well, this is this and this is that. We asked our parents. We we made up stuff. I mean, we thought we were making up stuff. And we came back with this. Every group felt like this. We felt like we had failed utterly. And then after that, he read to us some critiques or some interpretations of that piece, which were not far off from ours. Now that he took, it was a great risk, but what he did show us was that if you open yourself up enough, you will get something from it. You don't have to get everything, but you get something, and that's enough. And if you like, if something haunts you, it's not about understanding it, it's about whether it enters you in some place and makes you feel something. That's what you go as, go on in terms of understanding. That's really good advice. I, I have a ritual with my daughter where I read her a poem most nights before we both go to bed. And um, I am going to repeat exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. Find something, yes. So great. I'm so glad you're doing that. Uh, it's wonderful. Yes. We're, we're coming on the close of our time, but I'd like you to talk a little bit about your latest collection. Uh, first of all, the title. <laughs> Playlist for the Apocalypse. Partly that title came from the fact that, that I was putting together this volume and it had been a long time in coming, but um, the more recent poems were dealing with a lot of very private things, uh, illness and, and other kinds of struggles, uh, loss of family members. But as the pandemic hit us, I was constantly being asked, could I read an uplifting poem? And my hackles would rise. I would say, what is uplift? You know, uh, well, well, first of all, because as we all know, words of, that are meant to be uplifting uplift really only for a second. What, what truly uplifts us is the actions of others and also to become fully engaged in something that reminds us that we are larger than what we think we are inside. Uh, so, so I thought what is uplifting to me 
is to write the best poem that I can. Um, that's part of my reaction to that. But also the fact that the word apocalypse doesn't necessarily mean a dystopian universe. It doesn't. It also means something is revealed to you uh, um, that changes the way in which you look the world. Look at the world. That is what has happened to us. And so uh, that's how the title kind of came about. Playlist. Hey, we put together playlists. I remember my daughter first putting together playlists for me. I'm like, playlist? What's a playlist? Uh, but the, the whole notion that you would curate uh, a group of, of experiences, let's say, in music or in, in, you know, what in this case in poems, was what put together that title. So, Rita, I have a million more questions I would love to ask you, but I don't want to test your patience. So let me just ask you one last one, which is um, what advice would you have if you could offer one piece of advice to burgeoning writers? What would it be? This sounds kind of old-fashioned, but it's true. Never lose your love of reading, you need to, if you can fall into a book, if you can be consumed by that reading, uh, it will always help your writing. So that's the advice I'd give them. Well, thank you. Well, Professor Rita Dove, it has been a total pleasure and an honor to spend this time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've really, really enjoyed it. Inside UVA is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the President at the University of Virginia. Inside UVA is produced by Mary Garner McGee, Brooke Whitehurst, Matt Weber, and Nathan Moore. We also want to thank Rita Dove, Stephanie Gunst, Monica Schack, and McGregor McCants. Our music is turning to you from Blue Dot Sessions. Listen and subscribe to Inside UVA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about the life of the university.